Well, amen. We will uh, be talking this morning about God is Father. For those of you that may not know me, my name is Michael Bean. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Riverview, and it's a uh, privilege to be able to stand and share God's Word with you. It's something that I am thankful for and uh, glad to be able to do this with you this morning. Um, Today, we'll be talking about the very thing we just sang about, that God is our good Father. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 4 this morning. Galatians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 together today. And um, it was so neat to hear um, our children's church kids that are now gone. Just a moment ago, they blessed my soul as I was thinking about this and preparing. I don't know if you could hear them, but man, some of those kids were just screaming. You are a good, good father. And it was just uh, really neat to hear because the reality is um, we're all children. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you would, please go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time, and God, we thank you for your word, that it has the power to change hearts, to transform lives through your Holy Spirit. And so now, as we open it and study it together in this time, God, I pray that you would see fit to use this time for your glory. Thank you that you love us, and thank you that you are with us in this moment. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So today we'll be talking about, as I said, understanding God is our Heavenly Father. And this is probably not something new to you. This is probably something that you've heard many times before. But I believe that it is really just crucial for us to be reminded of this truth over and over and over again when we think of our Christian identity. We talk a lot about a Christ-centered identity here at Riverview. In fact, it's a part of our mission statement that uh, we want to build up, guide people to a Christ-centered identity and a Christ-centered influence. And the reason that I think it is so important for us to think on our Christ-centered identity is just simply this truth, this reality that we cannot live the life God calls us to live until we are certain we know who we are in Jesus Christ. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to perform the Christian life. We need God to do that in us and through us. And so we must understand who God says we are. And one of the the great things, I titled this sermon, The Crown of a Christ-Centered Identity, because I believe one of the The high points of a Christian's identity must be that we are sons and daughters of the King. And to really unpack that this morning, to spend some time talking about that, one of the reasons I think perhaps fatherhood has been on my heart recently is, um, many of you may have heard already, I don't know, but this past Friday, we got great news that my wife and I will be able, or I will be the father, I should say, of a new baby boy. And so, uh, thank you, yeah. So we're thankful uh, for new life in Christ. Not only do I have a beautiful five-year-old daughter, now I get the the privilege, Lord willing, to raise a son this November. And so um, as I've thought about fatherhood the the past several weeks, the Lord has really challenged me and convicted me, but he's also done this. He has assured me, um, not because I'm a good father, but because he's a good father. So we're going to talk about that uh, today. So I want to do a little audience participation to get us started today, make sure that we're all awake out there this morning. I want to ask you a question, and if this is true of you, I would ask you to raise your hand. Uh, The question is, or I guess the statement really, 
Raise your hand if you are someone's child, if you have ever had a father or mother of some sort, ever. Yeah, that should be every person in the room, right? If your hand is not raised, you're either asleep or not paying attention or something. Uh, And so here's the reality. We're all children. Every one of us is a part of who we are. We may outgrow childhood clothes and car seats, but we never outgrow our need for a personal, dynamic, and genuine relationship with our Heavenly Father. It is the greatest need that we have. And someone here may object this morning. Um, Many of you perhaps have seen the movie The Shack or have at least heard of the book The Shack. In The the Shack, there is a phenomenon that happens where the man in the the main character in the story is raised and he has a difficult father situation. Um, And in fact, perhaps even a bad father would be a way that you could title his particular scenario. And there's a lot of pain and hurt that has come from that experience. And so thinking of God as Father in the book is a stumbling block, really, to his faith. It's something that um, is put as, as almost a wall that is not passable. And so in the book, God manifests himself to this man in a shack uh, as a woman. As a woman. And one of the things that... I've got, actually got two things that I would like to say to those of us that are perhaps grown up with difficult fathers or absent fathers or whatever the case may be. Uh, the first is that, um, just very simply this, that, that I am sorry. Um, that I am sorry, not because I'm sorry for you necessarily, but that walking through life with a difficult father, walking through life with an absent father is one of the hardest things that a person can walk through. Research shows us that. Um, that it is a very, very, very painful and difficult thing for a child to experience uh, separation from his father because a father is supposed to be a loving, strong, faithful, self-denying pursuer of his family. He's supposed to chase after his children. He's supposed to go after and chase his wife. He's supposed to love them. They're supposed to be a huge, huge part of his affections. And so... If that's been your experience, um, I would say that, number one, I'm sorry, but number two, this, that there is hope for you because of your heavenly Father, because of who He is. We're going to unpack that this morning. Uh, A child who grew up in a home whose parents had a broken marriage can still imagine what a healthy marriage might look like and even aspire someday to have a healthy marriage. And the same is true of those of us that have grown up in homes with difficult father situations. We can still understand what it might be like to have a good dad. And the reality is this. God is everything a father should be. He is more than enough for you and for me. I have a friend who uh, takes lots of pictures. He's a professional photographer and um, he, he does this for a living. And one of the things that he would tell you that if you take a picture of a married couple and it's blurry or out of focus or somehow distorted, he would say, you don't need to change the target. You don't need to adjust the couple. You don't need to to mess with what you're trying to take a picture of. What you need to do is adjust your lens, right? That there's something wrong with the lens, and so we need to look at that and try to fix that. And I would say that's the reality for those of us that have had difficult father situations. We don't need to change our target. We don't need to change God, especially if God teaches us in his word, as we'll see, that he is a good father. It's not that we shouldn't think of him that way. It's that we need to look at our lens and realize maybe the lens was broken. Maybe the lens was faulty that we were given as a child growing up. And so we need to be close to God, and we need to really sense His love, not just know about Him intellectually. The love, grace, and fullness of God's goodness in your life is yours if you are a child of God, and we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, The first thing that I'd like us to do, I really debated on whether or not we would do it together today, but I decided we would, and that is we're going to look at a few places in Scripture in the New Testament to kind of demonstrate this idea of being adopted into the family of God, because that's the image, really, that is given to us in how can I, how can you and I understand our relationship to this God? How are we supposed to understand how to relate to Him and how to know Him? 
The picture, one of the primary pictures that the Bible gives us, it's not the only one, but it is certainly one of the primary ones that the Bible gives us, is this picture of God as father and us as children who are adopted into his family. So we'll look together and kind of trace out and connect some of the dots. We'll be looking mostly in the New Testament. There's basically four kind of terms that I'll give you this morning for those of you that are taking notes, four terms to help us kind of see a biblical case for a theology of adoption. I think it's really important, again, for us to grasp this because, again, if we're going to live the Christian life, if we're going to be who God calls us to be, then we've got to know who we are in relationship to him. So let's look at this. First off uh, is the term children of God. First off, the term children of God. I'll read uh, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. It says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become... Children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And so one of the things that a person might say when we look at this is, well, Michael, isn't it true that really we're all children of God? We're made in his image. And I would say, yes, in a sense, that's correct. But the Bible is absolutely crystal clear that in another sense, that's very wrong that there is a special dynamic relationship that we are called to have with God that was severed in the Garden of Eden. Yes, we are made in His image. Yes, in one sense, we are all His children. But in a very another, more, much more important sense, we are runaways. We are those who have decided, I want to be God. I want it my way. I want to live my life my way by my rules. And we have rebelled and run away from this loving Father. John, or 1 John 3, 1 is another example of this idea of being God's children, the children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So it's the first term is this idea of children of God. The second term is what we actually find here in the book of Galatians. Uh, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time reading these, but, but I do think it's important for us to know. It's the explicit use of adoption, the word adoption. And so we see that in two places in the New Testament. First, in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. And it's actually put together very much the same as in Galatians 4, 5. Let's look at Galatians 4, 5 together. He says uh, this, "...to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons." Verse 6, "...and because you are sons..." God has sent forth his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So this idea of being children of God, this idea of the explicit use of the word adoption, and then next, uh, this, this term, that we're brothers with Christ, that we're brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Romans eight twenty nine says that for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then Mark 3.35. Looking at those seated in a circle around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And this, I think, again, this idea that we're brothers with Jesus, that we're a part of God's family, really helps us understand a much bigger picture of the Christian life, even a long-term picture of future grace. When we think of uh, this question, will we be married in heaven? Jesus actually answers that question for us, and the answer is no, we will not. That Your spouse today will not be your spouse in heaven. He, says, he teaches that they are neither married nor given in marriage in heaven. Why is that? Well, a clear understanding of the reality of adoption into God's family really clears this up. The simple answer is that the spiritual family of heaven supersedes the physical family on earth. We aren't married in heaven because we would be married to our brothers and sisters. So the earthly family is actually meant to be a temporary foretaste of an eternal and heavenly reality. So we see this idea of Being a part of God's family actually is popping up in all kinds of places throughout the New Testament. This is not just a one-and-done kind of thing, but this is a theme that recurs over and over and over again. I'm actually not even listing all the, the, the different places. And lastly, the last term that I would give you is the term Heavenly Father. That's the, perhaps the most obvious, but it's, 
Again, very, very, very prevalent in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus' teaching says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Not only is God a father, but God is a good father. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift that we experience in this life. So if you have good things in your life, thank God. He's the one who made the gift, he's the one who made you, and he's the one who allowed you to have it. When we think about just how much we have been given, our hearts should be filled with joy. But the idea of God as a good father is really under attack in our culture today. Um, Men in general are kind of beat up on in many ways throughout the culture. But especially fathers, you hear the term deadbeat dad a lot. And as I've been thinking about God as Father, one of the things that that really convicted me about His goodness and about how He loves us is just this, that God will never, ever do this. We all know what this is, right? This is something that, that really convicted me the other day. God will never do this. Hey, yeah, how are you? Uh huh. Okay, that's nice, Audrey. Yeah, I'll catch up with you in just a minute. You go play. Think about it. The creator of the universe, he orders the stars. He knows where every drop of water on this planet is moving. He understands the ins and outs, the hurts and fears of every person. He's never too busy. Not only that, he doesn't just say, I'm not going to do that. He says, hey, I want to know you. Tell me about your day. Come here, son. Talk to me. Come here, daughter. Sit. Be still. and Know that I'm God. Know that I'm your father. He's a good God. And he's a good father. Far beyond any earthly father could ever hope to be. Goes on in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 8. I won't read it to you, but it talks about that God disciplines his children. In John 20, 17, I want to read this because it kind of brings the, the brotherhood idea and the fatherhood idea together in one verse. Jesus said to Mary, stop clinging to me. This is after he's been resurrected. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And then we all know Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer. Let me ask, how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father. Jesus doesn't, he's not teaching himself how to pray. He's teaching us how to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. You should pray like this. He could have used any name. He could have said, the Lord, most high and mighty God, Yahweh. He could have said any number of names. He said, our Father. And so our adoption into the family of God is one of the primary lenses that we've been given to see how to relate to this God. God is restoring something that we're all made for through Jesus Christ, our relationship to our Heavenly Father. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4. That's kind of the the preview. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4 now that we've got a bigger picture of what God is trying to say to His people. Um, Verses 1 through 3. Look at the difference between sonship and slavery. Verses 1 through 3. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so Paul actually sets up this kind of comparing and contrasting of sonship and slavery. Sonship and slavery. And so he wants us to see the difference between sonship and slavery. The difference between sonship and slavery. First off, our slaves. And slaves are those who do not know God. They have no spiritual father. Not because, again, God ran away from them, but because they have run away from God. They are orphans. The Bible is clear that this is the state into which every person on the planet is born into. We are estranged from our Heavenly Father because our hearts desire to be the king of our own lives. But then there's the idea of son. Those who are boldly able to cry out, Abba, Father. They have two things for certain 
that the son, or excuse me, that the slave does not have. Two things for certain that the slave does not have. We'll get into a few other things as well. But two things certainly that a son has that a slave does not is number one, a secure relationship. A secure relationship. A son's relationship to his father is, is not going to change in this, in this picture. He knows his father and his future and relationship with his father is secure. The slave, however, does not have that relationship does not have that security. The second thing is that he has a grand inheritance. He has a grand inheritance. Literally, whatever the father owns is coming to him someday. Whatever that may be. Think of that for you, of those of you that know Jesus Christ. Whatever the father owns, someday we will inherit. Someday will be granted to us. So I want to kind of keep working out this, this uh, difference between the slave and the son. A couple of other things that come to mind when we think about a slave is that a slave is imprisoned instead of free. A slave is imprisoned instead of free. What is it that we're imprisoned to? Sin and the power of sin, right? Sin, just like a slave master, drives and beats and drives the slave slowly and slowly towards death. It drains the very life from the slave in many ways the way that he's treated. And the same is true of us in our relationship with sin. Sin is a merciless taskmaster and it will over and over and over again condemn us and beat us up. In fact, the Bible describes a sinner returning to his sin quite graphically. He, the Bible describes it as a dog returning to his vomit. This is who we are apart from Christ. This is what we do. We are oppressed And we are unable to rescue ourselves. We are unable to find a way out. Another thing that a slave is, that a son is certainly not, is that a slave is lost instead of found. A slave is lost instead of found. If you've ever been lost, you know that there's a searching and a wondering and an insecurity that comes with being lost. Um... The, the Bible describes us as lost sheep, wandering, endangered, and afraid. I remember one time my father and I uh, had the privilege of attending the U.S. Women's Open. It was in Mississippi at an upscale country, clo- uh, excuse me, country club called Old Waverly. And so we were excited to get these tickets and go. My dad's a huge golf fan, and I, I uh, enjoy golf myself. And so we got to go and see some of the best ladies on the planet play golf. And uh, being in Mississippi, there was uh, an interesting dynamic, and that is that there was this beautiful golf course, but it was surrounded by cow fields, cow pastures. And so there's just these huge cow pastures all the way around the golf course, and there's limited parking in the parking lot. It's for VIP only. And so me and Dad didn't quite qualify for that. We had to park in the cow pasture. And so we get out of the car, and we start walking towards the golf course, that day in Mississippi, it got up to, I think, if I remember, it was 103, about 98% humidity. And so we're walking around, trudging around through basically, you know, the tropical uh, rainforest is what it felt like. And at the end of the day, we're soaked in sweat, we're completely exhausted, and we'd actually run out of water and said, all right, it's, we're making a beeline for the truck. We're going home. And so we start trying to go and find the truck. And I remember even that morning, we, we got out and we said, okay, look. Here we are. Here's the cow pasture. We're by this tree. You know, we're trying to get our markers and our bearings all set. And so we go out and we start looking for the cow pasture that we came from. And uh, we thought we were doing good. We found a tree and we went to the left and we looked for the truck. No truck. Okay, let's go back. So we went back hundreds of yards, retraced our steps. Still no truck. Fortunately, there was a parking lot attendant in the cow pasture. And we said, look, we parked our car right here. And he said, are you sure? We said, absolutely sure. And he said, well, you know there's about six other cow pastures around here, right? We said, no, we did not know that. And so we had to walk and wander through pasture after pasture. I think it was about number four. We found it. And I can tell you this. The Bible describes that there is much rejoicing when one of the stray sheep are found in heaven. There was much rejoicing for us when we found the car that day. And the reality is this. God loves us. God rejoices when he has one of his children return home. And not only that, there is a great joy in being found. If you've ever been lost, 
There's a great peace and assurance that comes when you finally know where you are and know that you've been found. So we've talked about lost instead of found. We've talked about enslaved instead of free. Lastly, we'll look at objectified instead of loved. Objectified instead of loved. One of the things that is interesting about a slave, uh, a situation with slavery is that a person, it's not interesting, excuse me, that's a bad term, sad, uh, a person is treated as an object. A person is treated as an object. And in many ways, before we are bought with a price, while we are still slaves, we are objectified. Uh, Our sins literally define us. If you lie, what does it make you? A liar. If you cheat on your husband or wife, what does it make you? An adulterer. If you steal, you're a thief. And so in many ways, the things that we do define who we are before Jesus Christ. But once we are saved, once we are bought, once we are brought into the Father's family, all of a sudden the things that we have done no longer define who we are. We are defined instead by who we know. We are defined by our loving Father, by our good Father. One of the the things that helps me think about this is, is the principle that the greater always grants value to the lesser. The greater always grants value to the lesser. Uh... One of the the things I meant to bring this morning, I didn't have one with me when I walked out the door. I meant to have a dollar in my back pocket this morning. I was going to use that as part of my illustration, but I don't have one. So interpret that how you will. But um, I didn't have a dollar this morning. And uh, as as I came here, though, I wanted to ask you this question. Why does a dollar have value? Where does its value come from? Because it's really just fancy paper. There was a time, right, we know that the U.S. dollar was backed by gold in Fort Knox, correct? But that's not the case anymore. The government just says, hey, this is worth something. You just need to take it and trust it. Where does, that, where does its value come from? The, the value comes from the authority and the sovereignty of the United States federal government, correct? That's where it's backed up and enforced, okay? So the greater... The government is conferring value onto this dollar. The same is true for gold. Why is gold so valuable? Sure, it's a precious metal. Sure, it's workable. It it provides some things. But the reality is, the reason gold is valuable is that humans decided, I like that stuff. I want some of that. And so it created scarcity and demand, correct? And so there's this value that's given to this metal. But it's really just metal. A child looks to her parents to know how to understand her sense of self-worth. How does she get her value? The greater confers value or fails to confer value to the lesser. You see, a slave, a slave doesn't know his value. We know from our, our country's own checkered past that oftentimes slaves were bought and sold in complete disregard for the family unit. And so children and mothers and fathers were separated and sold at will. And so the slave could really only find his value in this. It's whatever someone will pay for me. Friend, let me ask you, who decides what you're worth? Where do you look for your sense of value? If anything other than your heavenly father is defining your sense of self-worth this morning, you're acting like a slave. But there's a third option. We've talked about slavery. We've talked about sonship. But Paul also alludes to this idea of a child, an immature child. And he talks about that they are under guardians. Let's look at it in verse 1 and 2 real quickly. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So there's this third option. There's those who are slaves and are spiritual orphans and are separated from God. There are those that are sons. They're able to cry out, Abba, Father, that are secure in their relationship and have a grand inheritance awaiting them. And then there's a middle option. There are these immature children who are a part of the family of God but are treated like slaves. And this actually refers to, we know from the Old Testament, Israel. Israel... It was God's chosen people, a holy race. They were chosen literally by God. 
And there was a time when Israel knew of God and was expected to be in covenant relationship with God, but did not have access to the fullness of his grace or his presence until Jesus Christ came. They were unable to boldly approach the throne. They had to continually do something. They had to continually keep the law. They had to continually offer sacrifices. And they had to continually go to the temple to worship because God's presence was literally contained at the temple. We know there was the temple, then there was the, the temple courtyard, and inside of that temple courtyard there was a holy place. And really the holy place was divided into two places. There was a veil or a curtain inside of there, and behind the curtain was the most holy place or the holy of holies. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and this is where the presence of God resided. And so if a Israelite, a person in Israel, wanted to go and be near God... They had to travel to the temple. They had to travel to the temple. And in many ways, the Old Testament helps us understand this reality. And when we think of God as Father, we always have to hold this other thing in our minds. And it is that God is incredibly and explicably beyond our wildest dreams, holy. That He is separate. That He's literally so holy that if we were able to see His goodness, unfettered, we would be killed. In fact, this idea of this separation was not necessarily God's intentional, original plan. We know in the book of Exodus that God, at several points, talked about revealing himself to the people at Mount Sinai. And there's an event where Moses asks God to see his glory. And he goes up on the mount. And he is able to see the glory of God, to see his back. And what happens to Moses' face? It shines. And so he comes down the mountain, and what do the people say? Oh, great, we get to see the glory of God? No. The people say, Moses, get away from us. Cover your face. This is too much. This is too much. And so Moses wears a veil over his face, a separation between God's glory and goodness and the people. And they are the ones that asked for it. And so we see this reality of Israel um, also is able to be transferred to us as believers. There's a sense in which many of us, I'm afraid, live as Christians in this life. We're adopted into the family of God. We've truly been justified. We've truly been forgiven. But we live as though there's a separation. We live as though the veil still exists. We don't have a vibrant prayer life. We don't desire to spend time with our Heavenly Father the way that we should. We just kind of go through the motions. Jesus reveals that this holy God desires not just to be our holy God. He is that, and that will never change. But He not only desires to be our holy God, He desires to be our Abba, our Dad, our Father. So, this kind of presents uh, perhaps a bit of a dilemma. How then do we grow up into Christ? How do we become a son? How do we come of age? There's two things that are found in verses 4 through 6 that outline for us how to grow up into God, how to grow up to be the sons and daughters that we're called to be in Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 4 through 6 together. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the first thing that we have to do if we're going to grow up into Jesus, and this is the thing that we're certainly most familiar with, that is we have to accept the work of the son. We have to accept the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have to be justified. We have to be redeemed. It's essentially this. We have to accept the gospel. It says that when the fullness of time came, Jesus came to set us free from the law. Had Jesus not come, it would still be our duty if we wanted to have a relationship with him to fulfill that law. But Jesus did exactly what you and I could never do. He lived a sinless life. He did exactly what the Father asked of him every moment of every day. 
He lived in perfect relationship with his heavenly father. And because of those things, he was accused falsely. And he was killed on a cross and he was murdered. And that death that he died was the death that I deserve. It was the death that you deserve. And he took that gladly on himself and rose again three days later because he had never sinned. So that, listen friends, so that we could be forgiven and have our relationship back with our Heavenly Father. There is this idea, I know that we've heard it many times, of the judge that bangs the gavel and declares us free. And that's true. God does this for us. He purifies us and cleanses us from sin. But God does not just simply stop there. Through the power of Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, we are set free and we're justified. And that's primary. But then this, he calls us sons and daughters. It's the image of a judge at a court hearing. And he bangs the gavel and he says, innocent, set free. But then the judge does this. He gets up from the bench and he walks around and he does something incredibly undignified. He bends down and he hugs us. He says, let's go home. You're part of my family now. You see, justification is primary. We can't have, we can't be sons without being justified. But theologian J.I. Packer talks about that Adoption, becoming a son or a daughter of God, is actually higher than justification because it's closer. We get to be in intimate relationship. God could have just said, boom, you're clean, and now I'll hold you at a distance. But that's not why Jesus died. Jesus died so that we could know and walk with a good Father that loves us. This is what Romans 8, 32 through 35 said. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? There's our inheritance. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There's justification. Who is there to condemn us? For Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Friends, that's who we are called to be. But we can't be that if we don't know our Heavenly Father. If we're not walking with Him. If we're not spending time with Him. So that's the first idea, is this idea of accepting Christ's work on the cross for you and for me. We have to respond in faith, admitting our sinfulness and declaring him as enough to be the God of our lives, to be the king of our lives and to forgive us of our sins. And then the second thing that is outlined in verse six is the work of the spirit. The spirit cries out on our behalf. We have to rely on the work of the spirit and the spirit does many things in our lives. The Spirit convicts us of sin. He seals our salvation. He illuminates our minds so that we can understand the Word of God. He quickens our hearts so that we're able to respond. And He does this in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He assures our hearts. The work of the Spirit assures our hearts. God's design and will for you as His child is not... As I've heard many church people say, well, I think I'm going to heaven. I think I know. I think I've done enough. No, that's not the gospel. That's not how we're saved. That's not how this works. Jesus died so that we could be in deep, personal, profound relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have that, you know. You know that he's your dad. And so we see that there is this sense in which the Spirit cries out on our behalf and assures our hearts. And this is difficult for us because this is a little more subjective. We understand we have these neat categories for this idea of justification and the cross, but the work of the Spirit 
is a little more subjective. And the reality is, if we have the Spirit, He's working in each of us. Never in a way that is going to be outside of what Scripture describes or commands. God is consistent in Himself. But the way that God is working out my faith and my salvation probably looks a little different than the way, exact way he's working it out in your life. And guess what? That's okay. You see, God doesn't just call us not to sin. We are called to not sin. But God calls us to actively be taking new ground for his kingdom. And so that's going to get us uncomfortable. That's going to put us in situations that we normally wouldn't put ourselves in. And as we do that, there's something that happens. There's this urging. There's this prodding. And if you've got the Holy Spirit in your life, you probably know what I'm talking about. These moments where you sense God's Spirit telling you, yes, you know what? You've been a jerk to your wife and your wife's been mean to you. But you know what? You need to yield. You need to love her. You need to serve. You need to put, die to yourself. Yes, you know what? If you talk to this person at work, this coworker about Jesus and the gospel, it might get really awkward. But there's an urging there's a sense, there's a call, there's a moving in our hearts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And here is our role. As he does that, as he prods and pushes and urges us, our role is exactly that of a child to his father. If we want to be in close relationship, if we want to be in good, near standing with our God, then we must Yield, we must trust, and we must obey the urging of the Spirit in our lives. And that's hard, friend. That's hard because we want to do what we want to do. We still have these little orphan voices in our hearts that yell, no, don't do that. Just do what you want. Do it. It'll be easier if you protect yourself. It'll be easier if you don't die to yourself in this moment. But we're called to yield, to trust, and to obey. And as we do that, we're able to experience and know and interact with God in a way that we would never be able to when we choose not to respond in faith and in obedience in those moments. And so we see we must rely on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I want to quickly identify um, two roadblocks to embracing this idea of the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. Number one is the great American enemy of, I believe, the Christian life, and that is busyness. We're so busy, most of us don't have time to pay attention to the Holy Spirit's urging. We just don't have time. I'm too busy. I've already got my whole week scheduled out. You know what? I've already got my whole month scheduled out. And so I just run from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, and I just hope it's good enough. No, friend, that is not what God calls you and me to. God Gave his son. And we say it all the time. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? God gave his son so you could have a personal relationship with him, the Father. So, busyness. Are you too busy to hear from God? Secondly, I think us as men struggle with this more than ladies, but it's a reality that I think we all have, have bought into a little too far. And it's overstating the truth, because it is true, that emotions should not lead our Christian lives. It's true. We should not go through life led by our emotions, because if we do, our lives are going to look like this. We go through life relying on the truth of Scripture, on the truth of God's Word. But emotions should never be absent from the Christian life. We should have strong heartfelt emotions for God. Just as a small child loves their father and wants to be around them, we should desire God. We should love him. Lest we forget Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is a command. Yes, we should think about God. Yes, we should have lots of Bible knowledge. But knowing God is not simply Bible knowledge. We must have a relationship with our Father and desire to be near Him, desire to love Him more. If we reduce the Christian life to a set of principles, and principles are good, friend, listen to me, Christian principles on how to live the Christian life are not bad. 
But if we reduce the Christian life just to this box of principles, we are in danger of missing out on the joy of relationship with our Heavenly Father. So I want to give you very quickly four evidences that you see God rightly, that you see God as this good Father that we're talking about. So we've talked about how we can grow up into Christ, how we can go from being an immature child to a mature child. But now I want to give you four evidences that perhaps maybe you're living this out in your life. Or maybe you're not. Number one is that we have a renewed perception of ourselves. And uh, these evidences are not explicitly listed in the scripture, but you find this idea in verses 6 through 7. Verses 6 through 7 of this chapter. But a renewed perception of self. And so I trust the truth that because of his son, God calls me his son. My relationship to God is as complete and secure as a true child's adoption. Again, we have gone before the judge and he has banged the gavel. He has come around the booth and he has taken us home. He loves us. Jesus has done this for us. We can never do it for ourselves. And when he hung on the cross and he proclaimed, it is finished, guess what? For those of us that really know Jesus, it is finished. It doesn't change. We are God's children. And so I have to say this over and over and over again to myself um, almost each and every day. And it's just this idea. I am what God says I am. I am nothing more and I am nothing less. But one thing is certain. God says I'm his son. I am who God says I am. I'm nothing more. It's foolishness for me to come over here and try to inflate my ego and make much of me. No one cares. It's not worth it. It's vainglory. But it's also foolishness to go around thinking nothing of ourselves. The God of the universe sent his son to die for you and for me. That communicates a great cost, a great value, a great love. And if he says I'm good enough, then I'm good enough. And so I am who God says I am, a renewed perception of myself. Number two, a renewed perception of God. I have a new understanding of who God is. God is a good father. He delights in me and I delight in him. I no longer live for others' approval. I have my father's approval. I no longer live in fear because my dad owns the place. This is his earth. This is his creation. He owns every aspect of it. And so I don't have to fear. I don't have to be in control. I don't have to worry. I no longer only want what the father can give me. I want my father. You see, that's the mistake that the prodigal son made. There's another father-child illustration in the New Testament. The prodigal son, he didn't want the father. What did he want? The inheritance. He wanted what God could give him. I don't want you. I want your stuff. I want your money. I want what's coming to me. I want what's mine. And so he goes, and he does all those things. And where does he find himself? In a pig pen. And at his lowest moment... The son has a change of heart. He realizes, I want to go home. I want to go back to dad. I'll just be a servant. I'll just serve in my father's house. I'll just be near dad because I know it's safe. And so he starts his journey home. And the, the parable tells us, the father sees the son from a distance that he would come and he would look for his son. And he sees the son. And he does what would be completely undignified. He does what a, 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 a man of renown would never do. He girds up his robe and he runs and embraces his son who had embarrassed and shamed him. And Jesus says, this is the father. This is the father's love for you and for me. This is what he does for us. I have a new, renewed perception of God. I want to be still. I want to be with my dad. Two more. A renewed understanding of obedience. We have a renewed understanding of obedience. No longer is obedience just a duty. No longer is it something that I just, a burden I just have to bear because it's what Christians do, because it's what everybody at church will think of me. It's no longer that. Because I once was alone and destitute, an orphan on the streets. But now, now I get to be a member of the most loving wealthiest and dignified family that's ever existed. Now I've been adopted 
into the family of God. I obey because I want to love and honor my father. I obey because I trust him. I obey because I know that he's got good things for me. And so to do what he asks is not just a burden. It's a heritage that I get to live up to. I get to become the man that my father wants me to be. A renewed understanding of obedience. And lastly, a renewed prayer life. A renewed prayer life. That all of a sudden, when I understand really that God is my heavenly father, I don't just pray at meals and at bedtime. Friend, how do you pray? You see, I'll be honest. There's times I can't get my daughter to be quiet. Dad, dad, hey, dad, dad, did you see that? Dad, hey, dad, hey, dad, dad, let me tell you one more thing. Let me tell you this about school. Hey, dad, let's go play Barbie dolls. Hey, dad. Right? Look, when a child sees their dad and they see a good father, they want to be with him. Friend, do you want to be with God? Do you spend time in prayer? there was one tangible thing I would ask you to do to help you apply this idea of being adopted into God's family to your life, it would be to start praying to God as your father multiple times throughout your day over and over and over again. Call on him. Daddy, hey, Dad, Daddy. Be still and know that he is God. So, which spiritual person are you today? Are you a slave? A spiritual orphan? never knowing the love of a heavenly father, never understanding just how much you're worth, always looking, always searching for more, overcome and overwhelmed by the power of sin in your life? Are you an immature child? Maybe you've been adopted into the family, but you've never lived in the fullness of the truth that God is your good father and he delights in you today where you are. He loves you. Perhaps like a rebellious child, you've been adopted But you push back. You find it hard to believe God's love for you. You're trying to constantly earn your father's approval and failing, not accepting that he loves you for who you are. Or lastly, are you a joyful heir? You run to your father regularly. You live in the reality of close prayer and renewed thoughts day by day. You're able to say and believe something like this I know my real identity. I know my real destiny. I am a child of God. He is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day near. My savior is my brother. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And what I see is my dad. Is that true of you? I'm going to ask Zach and the band to come forward. And in a moment... um, We're going to have a chance to sing about this good father. And as we do so, I encourage you to think on these truths, to think on who you are in Christ and to respond as God leads. I'll be available to pray with anyone. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're living as a slave, I encourage you, come. Let's talk. You can become a child of the king today. If you're here today and you've been living as an immature child, someone who hasn't trusted their heavenly father, they've, they've been adopted into this family, but they haven't been living it out. You're, com- you're more than welcome to come and kneel at the altar. I'd be glad to pray with you. Whatever it is that God leads you to do in this moment, yield, trust, and obey.